0: Hello, come on in. We're going to get started in a second. We've got a great conversation coming your way. I know people are filtering in, and as you do, I'm gonna just get started um, and welcome everybody. I'm Larry Jacobs. I am a professor at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs and the Department of Political Science. I direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is bringing you this program today as part of our ongoing uh, series. Um, One of our traditions here has been to welcome questions, and I want to just reach out to you. I know people have intense views about polling. Give us your best shot. We've got two great people here to talk with us, um, and we're going to get to as many of the questions as possible. You'll see at the bottom of the screen, there is a Q&A button, and that's your way of getting into the conversation and bringing your perspectives into it. I wanna now welcome our panel. It's, it's really um, a great joy to do this. Um, Kathy Frankovich is joining us. Kathy among people who, does, who do polling is famous. She ran CBS News's polling work for three decades. Uh, she was the point person for the CBS News poll. She was the point person in collaborating with the New York Times in the CBS New York Times polling. She ran the election night uh, decision team. Um, she's won many awards. Uh, we'd be here for a while if I listed them all. And she is a powerful figure in the public opinion uh, research community, serving on a number of uh, professional associations. Dr. Frankovich also has a PhD in political science. Um, I also wanna welcome um, my good personal friend, Bob Shapiro. Uh, Dr. Shapiro uh, uh, was my mentor at Columbia University only a few years ago. (laughs) And we've also co-authored together. Um, Professor Shapiro is the Wallace Air Professor of Political Science. He's president of the American Academy of Political Science. Uh, He's also been uh, the chair of the Department of Political Science at Columbia University, where he is now. Among his many publications is the book, The Rational Public, 50 Years of Trends in Americans' Policy Preferences with Ben Page. It was published by the University of Chicago Press in 1992. I tell you that because this book is still widely read. It is a seminal um, piece of work in the study of public opinion in America. So we've got two terrific, terrific people. Um, Dr. Frankovich, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it.
1: Nice to be here.
0: And um, Professor Shapiro, so good thank to you. have you with us. Thank you, thanks, just, for
2: inviting, thanks for inviting
0: me. I want to just start out with the kind of um, some of the polling results that we had and then the election results that in some cases the the polls those just before election day were wrong. And in more cases, the margin was, was off considerably in a way that underestimated Donald Trump's uh, strength. Florida is a case where the polls said that um, Joe Biden was up by two and a half points and Donald Trump won by more than three points. Michigan, the polls were off by five points in, in, um, in estimating Joe Biden's support um, Ohio, again, a big difference. Um, the polls just before election day had Donald Trump up by less than 1%. He ended up winning uh, by 8%. In Wisconsin, another miss where you had um, uh, the, Donald Trump's support underestimated by about eight points. The story doesn't get any better. In fact, it gets worse when you jump over to the Senate races Uh, where, again, there was an underestimating of Republican support. In fact, even more so in some cases than for uh, Donald Trump. In the case of of North Carolina, remember, before Election Day, experts were saying it looked like the edge was for Democrats to win the majority in the United States Senate. That probably isn't happening. We'll see what happens in Georgia with the runoffs. But in any case, if you look at North Carolina... The Democrat was um, uh, estimated by the polls just before election day to be up by 3.2 points. Um, the Republican won by 1.8. In Maine, which which Joe Biden won by nine points, the Democrat, um, Speaker Gideon, was estimated to be ahead by two points. And yet Susan Collins, the incumbent Republican Senator, won by almost eight. Bob Shapiro, this looks like an absolute fiasco.
2: Well, well it, 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 it looks bad from the standpoint of uh, underestimating Republic, Republican votes. Uh, in, 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 ter- in terms of you know, my, my perspective on this, my perspective on this is the comparison with the 2016 uh, election, where you, you saw a similar kind of thing. And as Yogi Berra said, looking at this current election, it's kind of deja vu all over again. But but he, but Yogi would also say the similarities were different. And the one difference is is that the the, the the pollsters at least got the outcome right in terms of which party won the both the national vote and the uh, and, and the electoral vote. But clear, but clearly there was there was a you know a a, a pro a pro Biden you know, bias in those in those pre-election polls, which which poses a puzzle. And you know ironic here, and I don't know, I don't know how much further you want, want, want me to go into here, or save it for later, is that the uh, the pollsters thought the polling community thought they had a good handle on what the problems were in 2016. And they had to do with uh, a couple of things. One of, one of which was they underestimated the the proportion of white voters without a college degree. And then there were undecided voters that broke, uh, in the, in the, you know, right, right before, right before the election. And you would have thought they would have compensated for that in some, in some way, the jury's still out in terms of whether they did or not. Larry. Um,
0: Dr. Frankovich, um, you know, there's been so much commentary on uh, these results. New York Times had a bold headline just a few days after election day saying wrong again about the polls. Uh, Nate Kahn from the New York Times said the polls were even worse than in 2016. Is that the way you see it?
1: No, I, I, I've lived through many elections, as you noted earlier. Um, and I've seen this happen even in cases when polls, in the long run, look pretty good. Um, I, it, Everett Carl add a famous political scientist, described in the 1996 election polls as the worst since 1948. It's going to be as much of a black eye as the misestimates made in the Dewey-Truman election in 1948. So, so these things happen. It's kind of a natural response. That said, there are a lot of things to talk about in this, in this year's polling. And um I you know in twenty sixteen the APOR report on the twenty sixteen election polls, which so, Dr. is Dr. a Dr.
0: major I just want to stop you there because um the three of us know what APOR is. Can you
1: I was about, about to yes tell us what it is?
0: Totally. It is the yeah. authoritative yeah. Well it's the
1: voice of of American Public Opinion Research. It's the American Association for Public Opinion Research. Um, It has thousands of members um, throughout the country, ranging from people who work for the Census Bureau in Washington, to people in academia, to um, media pollsters, to partisan pollsters, to market researchers. It's it's a very broad organization. Um, And they have in the past looked at election polls and tried to understand exactly what happens. Um, one of the things that those that 2016 report discounted completely was the notion of shy Trump voters. In other words, people who wouldn't admit they were voting for President Trump. This year, that um, that explanation has kind of popped up again. But I I, I don't think it's true. I, I would like to talk more maybe later on about what we're seeing or what I think we're seeing in terms of who's answering poll questions. Um, there was a concerted effort made by Republicans and even president Trump to say bad things about polling um, all of which could have impacted some of his supporters i i counted the number of tweets he wrote about fake polls using that term. There are 69 of them. Um, you add that to 750 of those of those that talk about fake news. This is a pretty concerted effort against the news media and what the news media does. So we should talk about that, I think. Um, and um, as we go into the descriptions of of what really happened in the polls in 2020.
0: But, okay, but I think you're providing perhaps an explanation for why the polls were wrong. You're saying, suggesting, at least that maybe Donald Trump's tweets undermine confidence, particularly among his supporters. But I just want to go to the record just to establish that we're on the same page that the polls were off. Florida, you know, it was the wrong, they they said that Biden would win, Trump won. And then we've got a string of States um, uh, where the polls were off considerably in terms of the margin. You jump into the Senate side, and it appears to be you know, kind of the same sort of pattern. So do you agree that polls were off in 2020?
1: I would say that the polls misestimated what was going to happen. I think we cannot separate what they did in the presidential vote with what they did in the Senate vote. It's the same instrument and the same poll. If something is going on in the president's race, it's going to happen in the other races as well.
0: So what about um, Maine? what about Maine then? Because in Maine, Maine
1: I'm going to say had... Maine is different. Okay. Let's leave Maine aside. Sure. Let's leave Maine aside and let's look at all the other ones, which where everything is happening in the same direction and you don't have this massive vote for Biden for president and a massive vote for Susan Collins for the Senate. You have you have basically more Republican votes for both offices. Um, This election, people voted a straight ticket, so any extra person who comes to the polling place to vote for Donald Trump is going to vote for those people who are um, running on the Republican line for the other elections. Now, were they reached by the polls? Were pollsters able to measure them? Were they able to talk to them? Maybe not, but if they were unable to talk to them, that meant that that error is gonna carry over throughout all the races. I don't know, is that sort of straightforward enough?
0: Thank you. Um, Professor Shapiro, we've had the polls going on and then we've got uh, several well-respected statisticians running probability models. Nate Silver at 538 is probably the best known is the problem uh, exclusively with the polls or does some of the blame for this sense of the polls being wrong and, 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 and the mistakes that were made, is that due to the probability models which may be creating a false sense of, of confidence about who's gonna win, it's kind of in the bag for Biden, so to speak?
2: Well, I, I, I think that there are two problems here. One is the quality of the polling data. Themselves, which which influence what kinds of predictions come out of the model, and that and that that led to the predictions that, that came out. But the other problem is a, a communication and perceptual one, though. And I, what what stunned me in the current uh, discussion of, of the of the of all the election models was that you you had you had the same overconfidence expressed. In the, uh, the descriptions of the model results, this time as, as we had in 2016, and, he, and even, even in some respects a little more so, especially given the context of what happened in 2016. Now, Nate Silver did keep hedging about the probability, you know, the possibility that that uh, the, the, the model the model could be wrong. But when you speak, when you keep saying 80 percent, 85 percent over and over again, you get this certain you know perception, and it would, it would be better just not not to emphasize it quite in that you know in in, the, in that in that same way.
0: And um let me ask you uh just more broadly. I think a lot of people, including I have a hunch, some of the people watching this, have reached the conclusion that polls are not worthwhile. They are simply, you know, a, a lark. Um is that true, or are we just too fixated on, you know, polls on election day with, with high expectations? Uh Dr. Frankovich?
1: Well, you know people are starting to put out polls on the Georgia Senate race uh, runoff. So I, I would think that nobody's sort of putting the brakes on conducting them. And, and as we all know, I mean, this is really the only way that it's possible to measure the opinions of the public. Um, you know, Abs, let's take out the whole election issue, but, but just in terms of what people think about broad issues. Um, you know, a president can say what he believes, um, or someday she believes people think about, about an issue. Um, but that's not really right. A journalist can walk around a street and say, well, this is what the people think after interviewing four people. Um, it's, it's really the only tool that pre- presents um, a representative sample. Which may have issues in in one sense or another, but a representative sample talking about the public. Uh, and I think that we don't have a substitute for that now. Tweets don't make it, Facebook posts don't make it. Um, and um, you know, they may measure something about a certain group of people, but this is the last remaining way that we can talk about the American people with some justification that we're saying something that's sensible and more or less true
0: Professor Shapiro there's a lot of polling going on outside of horse race polls with a couple of candidates are the problems we're seeing uh, and the the kind of doubts and skepticism about election polling um, does that kind of dis- discount or even um, uh, eliminate the kind of non-election polling?
2: Uh, no, not at all. I mean, I, I make a, a very strong distinction between uh, pre-election polling and, and polling in general. The problem with pre-election polling is you're, you're trying, you know, the key issue is the kind of population coverage. Well, the population coverage here is, is a future population of voters that you don't know, that you don't know pre- precisely anything about. You may, have, you may have evidence about their prior voting records from voter files and things like that. Whereas if you're talking about polls of the, of the mass public at large, you know what the public looks like from census data, so in terms of any statistical modeling and adjusting that you can do, you can do much more reliably from the uh, the census data, which which is the population as a whole. Which, from the standpoint of non-election polling, is is attempting to pro- pro- poll the people in a democracy, where each each where each person counts, and you seek out each person whether they vote or not. And so that that's 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 the distinction there. And, and we can get into this later if you want, but but the non-response biases of you know, of Trump voters are, are matter 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 much much less because the, the biases there have to do with the fact that, that the people missed are going to be disproportionately Trump voters, where, where whereas people missed in, in general election polls can be adjusted for by, you know, by the demographic characteristics of the of the of the responses in your in your in your particular sample and those Trump voter you know non-voter biases don't don't creep in because also because they're their correlation between them and their opinions on issues and attitudes is much, much smaller than their correlation with the vote
0: itself. Dr. Frankovich, we've been talking and uh, Professor Shapiro has mentioned several times the struggle to get the Trump supporter, particularly those who are white and less well educated, to answer their phones and to to actually do a uh, poll. And so then the polls are off. Does that strike you as a major explanation for why Uh, The underestimate of Trump support?
1: Let me give you a little data. I looked at this. I looked at the final pre election poll that YouGov and The Economist did. I had access to those data, so I looked at that. And I decided to take regions and change our notion of regions you know northeast south midwest and west and turn them into political regions so i grouped the states i did this after the election i grouped the states by those states that joe biden won by 55 percent or more those states that donald trump won by 55 percent or more and everybody else and looked at the states in the aggregate looked at the voters in the aggregate and the ones living in pro-Biden states looked exactly the way you would expect them to. The ones living in close states looked exactly the way you you thought they would. But when I looked at the people who lived in, um, and I did this for a couple of polls, in in states where Trump won by 55 percent of the vote or more, I found that there too it looked far closer than it ended up being, which really was suggestive of to me at least, of the impact of um, presidential attacks and and other attacks on news media, on polls, um, in the places where expressing your own support for the president shouldn't have been a problem. It would have been a a place where everyone else or most of the people that you interacted with were thinking the same thing that you were. So I found that um, underscoring the problem that I think we did face in reaching the Trump voter. And I, I wouldn't necessarily put it in the sense of the white um, non-college graduate male, say that, um, but I'd put it in, in, in terms of just where people were living. The geographic segregation in this country is now so much uh, overlaid by political segregation. And that's sort of a, a change. That's a real change in the last decade or so.
0: Bob Shapiro, does that suggest to you that what maybe we should be uh, waiting—that is, you know, trying to put more emphasis not on demographic uh, characteristics, education level, but actually on region? You know, maybe we should be putting more attention uh, to folks living in rural areas where Republicans do best. Yeah,
2: I, 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 I agree with that. I mean, that, that came up in the context of 2016. That is the emphasis on, on you know, waiting for uh, white voters without college degrees. Uh, it was, was also related to um, basically um, voting in 2016 versus 2012, where there were rural and, and uh, um, small town areas that went, for, went, for, went better for Obama that didn't, did, did less well for Hillary Clinton. So there's a geographic component to it, but that didn't come out in any of the post, post-election diagnostics there. I think that's one thing that needs to be looked at further. I, know, the, I, know, I know, know that Ann Seltzer in Iowa brought that up in one of her NPR interviews on the subject. Also, there are just these psychological profiles of people that, that, that don't necessarily correlate perfectly with education and race that uh, lead people not to respond to polls that were, that were missed. And, and uh, there need to be you know, other ways of you know,
0: adjusting for that. Dr. Frankovich, I wanna ask you maybe the most important question, which is if you go, we go back 40 years ago the response rate, that is when a pollster would call someone, about half of the calls that uh, were made and completed with the appropriate respondent um, were conducted. Today, the response rate is below 10% and often around 6%. Is it possible to actually uh, produce reliably reliable samples uh, that ref- were- well- Genuinely represent the population. We've got such a f- small number, and now we're worrying about that small number not having, you know, these very important politically uh, notable uh, groups.
1: Yeah. Um, of course it could go away in the next election, but but let's assume it doesn't. Um, I I think that um, the the drop in the response rate comes after the polling industry has taken account of an awful lot that has changed. Um, they've adapted to the use of cell phones, mobile phones and adding them to landlines. Um, they have you know, managed to figure out how to weight them so that they're the right proportion of the sample. Um, so they've they've done things they need to do. They have diversified their interviewing uh, force. There's, there's a little bit more diversity in the, in the profession itself, which is a great thing. Um, but um, I, I think that it's it's sort of this response rate issue is is one of the reasons we're seeing an explosion of surveys that are done with online panels. Um, they are they are they have their own issues. Um, and and you can raise the same issues about them as you do with telephone surveys. Um, are, do they represent the entire population? Well, increasingly so as as online access increases, um, and um, and you can go online on your phone. Um, and, but um, you know, there's one. One difficulty and that is, of course, they need people to opt in and agree to take polls. And there may be something going on there. That's the same sort of thing that is um, affecting um, the response rates when it comes to telephone surveys. I I think it's probably worth noting is that we didn't see a big difference between, um, or I didn't see a big difference between telephone surveys and online panels this election year.
0: Could you just give us a sidebar on online panels and name one or two prominent examples of it for people who aren't familiar with them?
1: Well, um, I'm gonna try not to make it too complex. There, 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 are, there are some online panels that are created by drawing a random sample of the population by phone and getting people to cooperate and then become part of a panel to which you provide internet access. That's one group that is much, very much like telephone surveys. Um, but the other one is um, like YouGov is one of them. Um, and um, the one I'm I'm personally most familiar with, but there are many others as well um, where people are um, solicited, asked to sign up um, and then they are um, they are then um, interviewed occasionally online so it's 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 not a verbal yes and no I agree disagree with an interviewer it's you and your computer basically um, making making judgments. Um, and um, and then, weighted to the, the general population or the voting population. mugov um, does something interesting, which may be too um, specific here, um, but it does something interesting. It draws a random sample of the American Community Survey, which is conducted by the Census Bureau, and then does its panel, takes its panel, polls its panel or sam- part of its panel, and then um, matches them to the sample that it drew from the from the national um. American Community Survey, so so it's it's an attempt to make the um, the online sample represent the actual population, but you know these are sometimes difficult things to do, and there are there are issues with all of all kinds of polling this these days, um, and some are. Some are easier to solve than than others. It it is hard. People are busy. They don't answer their phone. Um, they may not want to give any information to somebody online. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons for um, non-response when it comes to to polls.
0: Bob Shapiro, I want to come back to you on the uh, response rate issue. It used to be fifty percent. Uh, it's now down to six percent or so. Is that a a, uh, a very naughty problem for uh, folks doing polling and relying on statistical um, weighting to try to get a representative sample.
2: Yeah, I mean, really, I, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's almost an astounding problem. And it's one that's, that survey researchers have really taken very seriously. You, you, you would think just you know, a priori, so to speak, that having a response rate of below 10% would mean you you have a sample that's really that's that's really bad and you can't you can't adjust it in any way. Well, it, it turns out, and this is just an empirical fact. Uh, for for the most part, you can and you can and you can benchmark the results against results from census data from other high quality surveys. And and there's no high quality surveys out out there. And I just want to give a plug to the uh, NORC General Social Survey, which is a social science survey, very high response rate, and also the American National Election Study. Uh, in-person survey, well, up until the pandemic, high response rate. And, you know, we can benchmark things um, to those. And also, if we look at patterns of public opinion, uh, uh, trends over time, relationships of, of public opinion measures, you, you, you still find this, the same kinds of things. And granted, low response rate introduces maybe more error, but that's in the context of other sources of error in surveys that can affect, point, as we say, point estimates of public opinion, things like question wording and stuff like that. So um, it, it, I, it, it's, 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 it's surprising, uh, but it's, but it's, it's an empirical reality.
0: Yeah. In a certain way, it's almost amazing. Yeah. That, that polls are, you know, kind of, excuse me for saying this, but in the ballpark, as much as they are, uh, given all the challenges we have, the low, very low response rate, the use of cell phones, the, the use of voter ID to screen out pollsters, it's, you've got groups of, you know, politically important, uh, segments of the electorate who appear to be, uh, uninterested in doing polls. It's, it's quite a challenge for election polling.
2: Well, election, election polling in particular.
0: Yeah. Let me, uh, Preston let me ask you another question. Um, the 2020 election, I think it's fair to say is not like other elections. We had a once in a century pandemic. We had, um, you know, a massive increase, a record number of vote by mail or absentee voting. Did that play any role in in what you see as the performance of polling?
2: Well, that, that, well that, that's a very big question. And when 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 APOR was asked to respond about this, they were they were they were basically hesitant because they said they they needed to assess the full situation and, and get more data. And you know, for a moment, I thought I was scratching my head a little bit. But then, but then, if you look at all the implications of it. Uh, they're they're really astonishing, and, and and just just to give you an example, this is a this is a counter hypothesis to the uh, to, to the uh, the pro Biden bias. What if it's the case that a lot of the there were a lot of Biden voters who casted ballots, uh, responded to surveys that were voting for Biden, but somehow their ballots their ballots never made it in, were never counted, or got lost. That would that, that would that would pro- that would produce a discrepancy between the election result. And, and and the pre-election polls. Now that that may seem a little bit far-fetched, but it's something that you, you need to consider. And uh, that's something that the, uh, the the analysts can consider further because they they will have records from voter files that they can match with respondents to surveys to see if they actually they said they voted and they actually voted or not. And especially if it, if it's their discrepancies disproportionately by mail, that will be suggested.
0: But but Dr. Shapiro, I just want to follow up on this. Um... Because that that's an explosive uh, idea, and uh, I'm sure people out uh, listening are now smiling if they're Biden supporters. Yeah. To have the effect that you're talking about, it means that millions of uh, ballots that were mailed in um, were not counted in a particular set of the key states. Is that plausible?
2: Well, it's. Um... I say the prob I say I say the probability I'd say the probability is low I'd say the probability is low. and it, but but it could it could have it could have also led to people misreporting whether they whether they were voting or not that is they thought they thought they were going to vote by mail and they said they were going to vote by mail but it turned out they didn't or couldn't or something so that, that you can add that into it Dr Frankovich
1: I, I wanna to add to this because I wanna talk about it from the perspective of, a, of the pollster and the potential for polling measurement problems here. Um, one of the things that I consistently saw was that about 43% of the total vote was supposed to be cast by mail. Um, another 20% cast by people voting early before election day, and um, which gave you a majority voting before the election day came about and you know in previous years if somebody told you they had already voted you agree you said okay yes you already voted and if i'm doing some sort of probability of um voting or i'm doing likely voters you are a likely voter um i i wonder if this year we or I were, was too quick to believe that that 43% actually, we know they got, they, they asked for a ballot. We asked that. We know that 95% of them said that they had received that, but some hadn't. Um, and so why should we think that that really was, everybody we talked to did get their mail ballot in um, and did get it counted? Uh, voters make errors when they when they fill out their their ballots. Um, the mail could be late. They just stuck it in the mailbox too late. They could have voided their ballots in some way. I mean, there's a whole lot of things that can happen. And I think this, a new thing for people doing election polls to confront, is something that they're going to learn more about and figure out. Hopefully, um, And for, so four years from now or even two years from now, this isn't going to happen. But I think I think. Professor Shapiro is correct, um, that there is, there is the potential for some of that overrepresentation of male voting to have occurred, uh, been discounted in many ways. And of course, as we all know, those male votes, when you ask those people who they were voting for, by two to one, they were Biden supporters. So it appeared to be this enormous bank of votes that Joe Biden was collecting before election day and the, the, the collection in you know, a collection plate might've been a little smaller than than we all thought it was. Um, and you add that too, to people who came out at the last minute um, for Donald Trump, because we know that most of the people who voted in person on election day voted for the president. Um, and, and then it just sort of uh, helps just- explain a little bit.
0: So basically what you're both saying is Maybe the polls weren't that far off because uh, people either believed uh, they were uh, voting by mail or, um, or they did vote by mail but did it incorrectly. And this may account for some portion of the, the gap and, and perhaps in some states may account for why um, Joe Biden lost closely fought races. Uh, Professor Shapiro, I want to ask you a question I'm sure you've heard many times. Uh, it's from Shannon Watson, who's uh, one of our stars in the Saint Paul Chamber of Commerce. She says she asked, "How much do polls drive results?" And perhaps what she's thinking is, and Donald Trump actually mentioned this that that the the bad polls for Trump beforehand may have suppressed his support by discouraging uh, his backers. Any legitimacy to that, or?
2: Uh- well, we, 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 don't, we don't know this for sure, but, but, but here, here's what we do know. Uh, between 2016 to 2018, especially 2018 to 2020, Trump's base of voters increased enormously. Trump got the second highest total number of votes of all, of all time. There was inc- an increase in, in voter turnout. In that particular context, especially given the, the, the very high temperature in this election, with emotions running high, I think incentives here were off the, were off the chart. Uh, they're, 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 they were off the chart here in New York, where we, where we had you know you have lines in places on, on on the day of election around the block at polling places, casting a ballot for Biden and other Democratic candidates who are for, who are, you know who are, who are foregone winners there. And I bet among those people were a fair number of Trump voters who wanted to register their support for Trump to to contribute at least to the national vote.
0: Dr. Frankovich, uh, we've got a number of uh, questions about the media and um, let me toss one of them to you, which is we knew when voting started in September and then proceeded for weeks and weeks up until election day um, and with states not counting those early votes, those mail-in votes, um, first, because they were doing the in-person, same-day votes. Nonetheless, on election night, there was the impression that Donald Trump had jumped out to lead that was significant, and that the polls were way off, because this is wasn't what they were, um, what, what we'd been led to to expect. And it was only in coming weeks that the full set of votes were counted. So my question to you is, do you think the election night coverage contributed to that that sense of the polls being wrong because the full set of of ballots hadn't been counted yet?
1: I heard a lot of people, a lot of journalists on air on election night talking about where the votes are coming from. These are in-person, day of election votes these are mostly mail ballots so i think they tried but i think that's a very difficult message to convey to people because at the same time you're looking at numbers and you say well these are day of election votes and donald trump is ahead by 300,000 that looks like a pretty insurmountable lead and look how many votes are in i i think that it's um it, you know it was a new thing um, I think that a lot of journalists tried really hard to be careful about what they were saying, uh, but it was very hard for people to ignore numbers that they saw in those states that didn't start counting mail ballots until you know whenever they got around to it that day. Um, so I think I think yeah, it it could have contributed to the perception of of polls are polls are bad. I don't think I think I did a talk um, in the in the evening um, of the day after the election. And um, I, I talked about this and I managed to start the talk right after uh, I think Michigan and um, another state had been called for Biden. So it was like one state away from, from getting an electoral college majority. So it was like a different, and it was a different audience at that moment in time than it would have been had I done that early in the morning that day when that was still not established. Um, yeah, so yeah, they could have done a better job, but I think they tried. Um, and I think they're gonna come up, they really think that people are gonna be sitting there thinking, well, what can we do? And how can we make this, this look better if this is going to be the same thing four years from now? It may very well be.
0: Professor Shapiro, do you think the way in which polls are reported by the media creates a false or unrealistic set of expectations of polling as you know this kind of precision uh, science. Well, I I, I I
2: think the the evolution of polling itself, which 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 I know you know a lot about, also has this you know scientific aspect to it, and it's it, it's it's something that uh, the, the media tend to appreciate because they tend to focus on you know experts and leaders and and, 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 and so forth. The um, the I mean, the the real problem here is that the the whole interest in pre-election polling it has to do with the public's curiosity with regard to what, 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 what the public thinks, how people are going to vote in the upcoming election. I mean, polling originated back in the 19th century with these straw polls that were done by journalists who would go into bars and you know, do straw polls of people, people there. So there's, there's that curiosity driving it. And what's been added to it over the years has been the, 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 the kind of scientific aspect of it, which came into play beginning in 1936 when in that election, the, the you know, social science was introduced into the straw polling world by George Gallup, And he was able to predict decisively the literary digest straw unscientific straw poll. And from then on polling had that aura of uh, science to it.
0: Um, let me ask you one other question. This is from Chris Moen um, asking about maybe leaving it to odds makers is the most accurate way to poll people as they've done in Britain what do you think of that? Have you May
1: followed
0: this? Yeah, Dr. Uh, Professor Shapiro. Oh, sorry.
2: Well, the 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 the, the, the 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 idea here of the odds makers is that it so it sort of speaks to this idea of kind of the wisdom of crowds, but where the crowds aren't the public, the crowds are these are these um, experts or people with best, vested interests in getting in getting it right. And the and the basic idea here is that you rely on a lot of these these experts to basically comb through all of the available data either systematically or impressionistically to reach an impression where they bring into play both polling data and other information they have that may be more qualitative than quantitative about what's happening what's happening in the electorate and there by virtue of, of gathering information from more sources they can come up with a better prediction now of course this is what the the aggregators like Nate, Nate silver and, and others do in a, in a, in a more in a more scientific way although the odds makers bring other bring in, bring other Other magic to bear on this. Uh,
0: Dr. Frankovich, we've got a question here from Gene Boyer, uh, which I think um, you have thought long about. Um, As I've become more suspicious of the intent of a cold call, I'm less likely to engage. Has there been discussion in the polling industry about how to reassure a participant that the call is a legitimate one, conducting a legitimate poll, that someone should be willing to respond to.
1: I I have a couple of thoughts, and and yeah, the answer is yes. There has been has been talk about this. It used to be easy in the days of landline polls, um, because if you had caller ID, you knew that you were being called by Gallup or you knew you were being called by CBS News, um, because that would show up on your caller ID. That does not work with cell phones. It does not work with mobile phones if the phone number is not in your directory, is not in your contacts. Um, so I think that um, there are there are people who are talking about doing other things. One is using text messaging um, in um, in 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 surveys, not so much to. Um, Uh, to to ask questions because that would take forever, Um, but um, to um, to alert people that there is a a call that may be coming and when it will come. Um, There are also uh, organizations that send out letters. Beforehand that's difficult to do in the days before an election. So, you know, it doesn't happen then but it does happen with people who are doing other other survey survey research. Um, But, you know, you have to get past that issue with people picking up their telephones and uh, yeah there's discussion. um, Is there a solution that's universally adopted or even adopted by a majority not not yet.
0: Professor Shapiro um, Questioner wonders whether or why um, some of the Republican polls that were released publicly appeared to do a better job than these so-called high-quality uh, polls by media organizations? Partisan bias—what's going on there? Well, that that, that that's a, that's a
2: very good question. I mean, I mean, I mean, to be most cynical, you could you, we can claim partisan bias and then you know, making making some things up, so to speak. But I don't think I don't think that's the case. What I, what I think what I think is is that has to do with how they how they view the likely electorate and the way the way they view it in terms of their likely voter models. It, I think they were probably inclined, and I don't know this for sure, but I think they were inclined to think that the other polls underestimated the proportion of Republicans in the electorate. And it was the case from what I could tell the pre-election polling for the most part had noticeably a noticeably smaller proportion of Republicans and Democrats in it. On election day itself, the uh, looking at the, the exit polls and other other data, it looked like the more things were closer and even in some of the key states, there were more Republicans than Democrats and by virtue of waiting a little heavily by by Republicans in their sample, they, they got results that were more pro Republican and closer.
0: So does that suggest the a correction for the uh, scientific community that adopting something that people have sworn off for years, which is waiting to party ID. Might have something to it in this well,
2: year. Well, the reason they've sworn it yeah. off is that the part, party identification is is movable, um, and, and it's and it's and it's not fixed like a demographic um, characteristics. But the, the first thing that the experts are going to do in looking at it is, is to see if, if there was some 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 demographic aspect that was off in the in the um, in, 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 in the polls compared to the actual the actual voters. And beyond that, they've got to look look at something that's more attitudinal, attitudinal, and psychological. Doctor Frankovich.
1: Make- Yeah, I'd like to add to this because this is is something that political pollsters do all the time, and they've been doing it for decades. Um, I used to get phone calls from uh, party pollsters, Democratic and Republican, asking me for the distribution of party ID in the most recent exit poll in a state so they could weight their samples to that. Um, That sometimes worked, and it sometimes didn't work. I think it's important to note that as Professor Shapiro said, party ID is malleable or has been malleable. Um, People can change, they can move away from being a Democrat to being an independent, et cetera. And it's sort of, it's not written down anywhere. So it's something that if you're not a registered voter in a party, you can change at the drop of a hat, at the drop of a question. Um, And we have to remember that when you go to the polls and you cast a ballot, potentially a ballot that's all Republican or all Democratic, you are doing the most partisan thing that you will ever do in your life. You've made a vote and you've made a statement so that if you are interviewed by an exit poll after that, you are very likely to give the same answer that you that as to what you did in that in that election. So, you know, it's n- almost never predictive of what happens next. Um, in one case, a number of years ago, somebody decided, I can't remember who it was, um, so, well, let's look at 2012 and 2014, let's average those two party IDs from the, from the exit polls and let's wait to that. And you grotesquely overrepresented Republicans. Um, so it's uh because of the 2014 election. So I think that that you have to be very careful when you when you do that and when you use the data um from exit polls on party ID. Yeah,
0: and, and you're speaking from years of wisdom in which you've seen Too many years. efforts at correction that end up producing a new set of problems. So your your counsel is let's be methodical about this, let's be cautious, let's not try to uh, jump to a conclusion about 2020 until we know more. And then even then, let's be uh, cautious about that.
1: And let me add, in 2012, many of you may remember, some of you may remember, there was this effort to Quote, unskew the polls um, by Republicans who said um, the their pollsters are interviewing too many Democrats. Therefore, we have to take every poll and we have to then um, change the representation of Republicans weighted up. Um, and you, this is how you ended up with polls suggesting that that Romney was going to win the 2012 election. Um, uh,
0: Bob Shapiro, um, we've talked about. White voters without a college degree. But there were other parts of the electorate that the polls got wrong, particularly Hispanic voters. Um, In Miami Dade, uh, for instance, um, many of the pollsters missed the tremendous increase in support by Donald Trump, which went um, from a Hillary Clinton 29 point advantage in 2016. To only a seven-point Biden advantage, and that that jump, not entirely, but for most pollsters, they missed that. Then, if you look in in parts of California, Houston, Philly, there was a similar kind of um, uh, mishap in capturing the Hispanic voter uh, and their and their candidate preference. Does that suggest another problem? Maybe it's not just you know sampling on. Um, rural geography, maybe there's just um, kind of a failure across the board.
2: Well, that, that's a good point. And if, and, if, and if this is part of this non-response bias, it means this non-response bias is not simply due to uh, education and, and white, non-white um, characteristics. It's, it's, it's something else going on there that may, that may be attitudinal and it's much more difficult to adjust for.
0: Um, Kathy Frankovic, um, I want to ask you about um, kind of old school polling, which was live interviewing. Uh, And it's much more expensive. It's got all sorts of challenges to it. On the other hand, we've now gone to phone interviews. We've gone to online um, surveys. If we're willing to invest the money and really do gold-plated polling, do you think Uh, live interviewing in which you've got pollsters walking door to door would that give us a more accurate and reliable set of results or uh Uh,
1: it has its own issues. It has its it has its own issues. As people live in apartment buildings behind locked gates, as people um, you can't get in. I mean, even the Census Bureau can't get into some buildings, and they have to rely on some kind person in there. I was once in the CPS sample, and um, and and it was like, oh, you know who we are. I go, yes, I know who you are. Come in. Um, but but most people would not would not do that. Um, so I think that in person interviewing, except in places. Now that I think about it, except perhaps in rural parts of the country, rural small town America, in those places that I mentioned as potentially places where Trump voters wouldn't participate, might not have participated in polls, um, it, it it it's it's not going to work. Nationwide, I mean, it it's that v- valuable and necessary in many countries. It's the only way you can you can sample a population. But in the United States, it stopped going out of favor in the 1970s. I mean, we're talking about almost 50 years. Professor Shapiro,
0: um, why is it, David Harris asked, that polls um, were much more accurate in some states than in others? Well, uh, um, well, that that's a very
2: good question, and 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 it, 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 the answer is I don't know, okay, and and, and but it, it could it could re- it could relate to the just the variability of this this particular kind of um, non-response bias. Uh, the, the, um, the 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 noteworthy states where the uh, the elections were close, and the and the, and the uh, the polls could argue arguably you know, said to have been on target, were, were places like, George, you know, Georgia and, and Arizona that were close to begin with and were, and were close, you know, close, close in the end. Um, I, 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 really, I really haven't looked at the data closely enough to
0: answer that question, but it's a
2: good point. And then, then there were the discrepancies between some of the Senate races too that were interesting in that context.
0: Dr. Frankovich, uh, we've got uh, some questions here again about the media and its performance. Do you think the media spends too much time on polls?
1: Um, well, I have to say no, but, but now let me talk about that. And, and and maybe people will, well, just will like
0: You're going to say no, because this was your, your
1: That's what uh, I did. Uh, <laughs> and, <your> um, <laughs> and, and there were times when I am, there were times when I had to fight to get polls on the air that I thought were important to work with a story about some major public event or some major issue that was, that was out there. Um, so, so yeah, I'm going to say no. But on the other hand i think it is an easy source of a story it is a story that has the impression of exactitude of precision because it involves numbers and you put a number in a story and people believe that it's true i mean that it's that it's precise and that you know being off by one point you're wrong um, so there's there's a, a rush to criticize. I think I think after the fact. So um, yeah, I think I, and I think that it's an investment. If a if a, if a news organization is doing its own surveys, there it's an investment, and it will want to use those surveys. Um, and so um, I, I I mean I've seen this in local, local stations and local newspapers. It's a big deal for them to conduct a survey. Um, And sometimes they rely on sources, on pollsters who aren't, are cheap, but maybe not very good. Um, You know, and the news media nationwide, it's a smaller investment um, proportionally with everything else that they do. Professor
0: Shapiro, let me ask another version of that question. Maybe polling continues to be um, a, a dominant story during election season, but should the polling data be different? That is, you are one of the nation's top experts on political representation and comparing public opinion and what government is doing. Should we be having more attention to polling on policy and the concerns of Americans and a little less on the this kind of horse race dimension?
2: Well, I- as someone who studies public opinion and policymaking in American democracy, I would say absolutely. We, we really should focus more on 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 the depth and breadth of public public concerns on a wide range of, of policy issues. And there's there certainly are plenty of them. And we we saw some intensive polling on basically racial justice and, and criminal justice, by the way, in, in, the, in this context. But yes yes, we should have more of that. But the reason we have more on the horse race has to you know has to do with uh, basically, the news media as a, as a business and attracting audiences. And, and the, uh, the, the public and voters are interested in finding out about those kinds of things, and they've focused heavily on that. Now, granted, maybe some process of public education should go on here and more attention should be paid to policy issues to, to get people more concerned with it. But I think there, it's, it's, it's basically, there's, there's basically a supply and demand problem going on here.
0: Professor Shapiro, uh, last question for you. Does the averaging of polls that we see with uh, Real Clear Politics or Nate Silver's 538, does that increase the accuracy of polls? Well, in
2: in in in, th- in theory, it should, and for and for the most part, in you know the vast number of cases where those kinds of project those kinds of projections turn out to be accurate, I, I'd say that's the case. But I just want to go back to the question about you know about the uh, the variability that occurred from state to state it could be the case and this is this is where the aggregation uh, is is, a, is 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 a negative but but can, can provide some insight it could be the case that among, among the polls that were averaged in cases of predictions that were off there may have been polls that, that had it closer to right and it's and it's looking at the methodologies of those polls that show that there're better polls that might that might provide answers to the question about, about variability and also what, what went wrong in the aggregation. The problem in the aggregation is it requires that you have, the better the, better the, the estimate requires more polls and more accurate polls. And, and to the extent you fall short on either front, you get estimates that are wrong.
0: Dr. Frankovich, um, we've got a series of questions about whether we should even be uh, using uh, polls in the 2022 or 2024 election. Here's a question from uh, Joe Defresna who says, I'm not hearing anything that convinces me that I should believe election polls going forward with a big miss in 2016, a bigger miss in 2020. Why should we listen to pollsters in two or four years?
1: Well, I think everybody has that choice. Um, I think that, that you can choose to pay attention or choose to not pay attention. Um, I think the question is, what are the people who conduct polls and report polls going to do? Um, I find it very difficult to think that they are going to ignore them. Um, I think they're always going to be asking the question of, of who's ahead. If you go back to the 19th century, uh, polls conducted uh, you know, polls conducted that would not meet any standard that we have today um, we're, were justified by news organizations by saying you really need to know something about the likely outcome, um, about what people want before an election. We should know this before it happens so we can make we can make plans now. Sometimes polls are more successful at doing that than they than they are. But you know, functionally, this year we expected uh, the public expected Joe Biden would win the election, um, and you know, it, it was very interesting. Um, we we knew that people believed that he would win the popular vote, but if you asked people whether he was going to carry the electoral college, the answer was more often no than yes, and even a large number of his own supporters were convinced that he would lose the Electoral College. I think that's the impact of election of 2016 on an election of 2020. Should you believe the polls, I think you should look at them skeptically and I think you should be asking questions about them, but you should know that the people who are doing it are, um, are serious, um, are, want to be accurate, um, care about the work they do and like to see it presented to people and so the public can choose or not choose to pay attention to them.
0: Bob Shapiro, i got one more question for you. It's from one of our important civic and business leaders in Minnesota, Kim Nelson. She asks, what is lost if we give up on polls altogether?
2: Well, in terms of what's lost on, on ignore, you know, if we, if, we, if we didn't have pre-election polls, I'd say not very much with the exception of what, Frank, what, what Kathy Frankovic just, just spoke about. In, t- in terms of you know, polls in general, um, there are a lot of things that have happened in the United States um, that are related to polling as indica- data coming from polling along, along, with, along with other things. I'll, I'll just give you one of the most recent compelling examples. Um, when when um, don't ask, don't tell was a- ended in the military, uh, the context for that was data, the, the findings from public opinion surveys that the public was, was basically supportive of, of getting rid of it. The decisive poll that was done was a poll done by the Defense Department of, of, of basically um, mili- military families and, and former serv- servicemen that asked them what difference would it make if don't ask, don't tell, were, were gotten rid of and we allowed uh, gays and lesbians in the military not whether they supported Gittering, but just how it would affect what went on in the military and how people um, viewed everyday life. And the findings of those polls were basically decisive in leading the Defense Department to say, no big deal. It's done.
0: Thank you uh, both. If you could just hang on a second. I want to just make a few quick announcements as we uh, move on. First off, we've got some incredible programs. Tomorrow, the president-elect's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan is coming to chat with us. Vice President Walter Mondale will be joining us. That is at noon. Um, those of you who know Jake Sullivan will know this will be a very special program. He is very smart um, and likes a complicated analysis. So, And plus we're gonna get a window right into this critical moment in the shift I probably in. US foreign policy and national security. Then we are looking at December as a take a deep breath period for our politics. Uh, We've got two of the best known uh, fiction writers in the United States coming to visit with us. Charles Baxter, uh, who's a National Book Award finalist is coming to to read and talk about his uh, his new terrific novel called The Sun Collective and two time Newbery Book uh, Award winner, Kate DiCamillo, is coming on December 18th. Those of you who've got kids, grandkids, or just like a great story, I guarantee you, Kate DiCamillo will not disappoint. She is a terrific writer, bestseller. Again, every book comes out, it's a bestseller, and she's a great guest. So come and join us. Um, And then I just want to make a quick pitch Um, The programs we put on, um, they take a lot of time and they take resources. So if you can, uh, please consider making a contribution. Um, And I want to let you know that this program, like all of ours, um, are recorded. They will be posted within 24 hours. They're also available as a podcast. So if you'd like to listen that way, do it. Um, And finally, I want to really thank um, our two terrific guests, Dr. Frankovich, thank you so much for joining us. Um, You know, you're really uh, one of the most important people in thinking through these hard questions. Um, Dr. Bob Shapiro, um, thank you so much for your time and um, for your expertise in sorting through these complicated uh, uh, questions with sophisticated answers. To all of you who've joined us today, thank you and we'll see you again soon. Huh.